association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. I'm your new host, Abigail Preston, and I'm joined by PSU alumni and my friend Sam Schrader today. Howdy. In the past, this podcast has largely been interviews with professors, but because I am producing this show remotely, I have decided to change up the structure a bit and bring you historical vignettes of basically whatever I personally find interesting. So, I hope you all listening find it interesting as well. Sam here is kind of my surrogate audience, so we can create more of a lively discourse than we would if I were to just talk at the microphone alone. So without further ado, let me talk to you about the American circus. I want to start with a quote from an anonymous circus spectator from the early 19th century. It is a kingdom on wheels, a city that folds itself up like an umbrella. Quickly and swiftly, every night, it does the work of Aladdin's lamp, picking up in its magician's arms theater, hotel, schoolroom, barracks, home, whisking them all miles away and setting them down before sunrise in a new place. So, Sam. Yes, my friend. What is what is, what is your impression of uh, early, early circus times? Um, I don't know. I guess when I think of early circuses, I think of, you know, kind of, the stuff you would see maybe in cartoons, like a gregarious ringmaster and scantily clad women jumping through hoops, animal abuse. That's pretty accurate. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> to an extent. So I'm going to be talking about the uniquely American circus today, kind of its origins. And for listeners at home, most of what I'm talking about today is information inspired by and collected from the PBS American History Circus documentary. You can find it on Amazon, as well as some other kind of supplementary articles and books. So the origin of the uniquely American circus dates back to 1793 Philadelphia during Washington's first term of office. This circus took place in a circular wooden arena constructed by British trick rider John Bill Ricketts. What's a trick rider? It's a guy or performer who does tricks on horses. So he was especially known for something called the Flying Mercury, where he would ride around with a child standing on his head. And I think he was also standing on the horse. Oh, wow. That sounds incredibly dangerous. Yes. Um, and Bill Ricketts was, John Bill Ricketts, um, was a British man. Do you know how many kids he went through over the course of, like, a typical circus season? I have no idea. Hopefully not many. Um, this show also included a rope walker, clowns, acrobats, and this woman named Helena Spinacuda, who was another equestrian who would gallop standing on two horses at once. Oh, like in Wonder Woman? Do they do that in Wonder Woman? Yeah. And yes. <laughs> um, so something I'm going to be focusing on in this sort of retelling of uh, the history of American circus is the role of women and people of color and people with disabilities. So I want to point out that this in 1793 is the first time that we're seeing like this is the beginning of the circus and already we have a woman who is like a co-headliner um, with this guy, John Bill Ricketts. Also interesting were uh, slaves were sometimes in the audience. They would attend 
the circus, and people who couldn't afford admission would peek through the holes in the wooden structure. So from the very beginning, this is something that appeals to all walks of life. Wait, were the slaves there voluntarily, or were they forced to watch the circus? I think they were there voluntarily. Okay. Like, it was noteworthy that they were allowed to go. I see. Um, in 1800, a fire burned down the amphitheater, and Ricketts left America and went back to England. Take a drink every time a fire burns down a circus. There were other showmen who attempted to keep the beginnings of the circus alive, um, but the vastness and sparseness of the U.S. at that time made it hard to attract a profitable audience. In 1825, a circus owner commissioned a canvas tent, enabling them to travel to towns, and that also gave them the flexibility to linger where there was uh, a more profitable population and spend only a single night where there wasn't. And the circus tent becomes distinctly American. The idea of a traveling tented circus is a uniquely American phenomenon. Um, performers with these circuses traveled every day for nine months of the year. Circuses were initially met with disapproval from religious sects in the 19th century who saw entertainment as a waste of time and therefore sinful, um, and others not necessarily religiously opposed saw circuses as immoral, indecent because of women in skimpy costumes, and as a breeding ground for pickpockets. Historian Dominique Jando says that there was certainly an attraction to the circus that was sexual in nature because it was the one place where women can show their legs. The circus uh, actually wouldn't become something aimed at children, kind of how we think of it now, until much later. So the introduction of the menageries, or the animals at the circus, um, was actually an effort to squash a lot of the religious rejection, because what ended up happening was people who had never seen an elephant, had never seen a giraffe, would go to the circus, see the menageries, and think, oh, these animals are described in the Bible. You know, this is educational now. Some circuses would also, they would charge like 25 cents to see the menagerie and 25 cents to see the big top show for more religious people who wanted to go for the, you know, educational purposes of the animals but didn't want to see the scantily clad ladies. Which is also biblical. There are scantily clad women in the Bible. Yeah, but not for, not for these folks. That's indecent. Most of the early traveling tinted circus outfits were really modest. Um, they had, you know, one advertising wagon, a 60-foot tent, and maybe a dozen performers. In the 1860s, as tents got bigger, um, trapeze arts became more popular, developed by Jules Lietard. Circus acts were also seen as a display of true manliness because of the agility and strength that uh, were displayed in the acts. And the Pullman passenger train cars of 1870 revolutionized the traveling circus. Um, they had been traveling in horse-drawn wagons before then, but with train cars you could skip small towns in between big cities and reach the big cities much faster. So that made the circus industry a lot more profitable. And what, when was this? Like, can you give me kind of a timeline of events? This is 1870 right now, and John Ricketts was 1793. Okay, so about 100 years have passed. A little less, but yeah. 
and the only innovation was tents and trains. Yeah. Things happen slowly. It ain't know. broke. I guess, yeah. I mean, it kind of was, though. But anyway. Um, 1872, P.T. Barnum's Railroad Circus becomes arguably the first industrial entertainment complex. Um, one historian says, you know, today we talk about big pharma and back then you could talk about big circus. Um, and we'll get to P.T. Barnum's origin in a bit since he is... It's, you know, him and the Ringling Brothers are, like, the two big circus people. I've heard those names. Yes. Um, for anyone who has seen The Greatest Showman, I watched it last night. I have a lot to say about it That's later. That's the documentary you're basing this off of, right? The Greatest Showman. No! Starring Hugh Jackman. No! Not a documentary. It's a musical. For anybody who doesn't know, I didn't know. I started watching it. They started singing. I was surprised. Something else I want to touch on is also that circus arts, strength acts, dancing acts, you know, trapeze, all these things, um, are allowed people to push the limits of humanness and thus transcend it. But Hang on, when you say it transcends humanness, I, I think you need to, I think you need to expand on that a little bit. So this idea, like. Pushing the limits of humanness and transcending it is an idea that they bring up in the PBS documentary. And I think what they're referring to is the idea, or more so the experience, of a regular person in the 19th century attending the circus and seeing somebody, you know, pull 500 pounds of weight with just their teeth. Or a woman lifting up six fully grown men or a trapeze artist flying through the air and these sort of death defying and um, unbelievable acts that nowadays we probably they wouldn't have the same effect on us in modern time because we see that kind of stuff all the time are you making any like fundamental distinction between humanness which is a word that i don't know if I've ever heard before, and humanity? Yes. I think when we say humanness, we're talking about our perceived physical, mental limitations. What is doable with the body that I'm in? Not necessarily the collective of humanity. So when we talk about transcending humanness, it is really that experience of seeing somebody who basically ruins all of your preconceived notions about what is possible for a human to do. Okay. And largely physically. In April of 1871, in Brooklyn, New York, P.T. Barnum's huge display of amusement, which they called a village of entertainment, was kind of the... It was a huge display of amusement official marketing like capital no. h capital d capital a no it was a giant circus with like a bunch of different tents gotcha and that's kind of like the peak that particular show 35 other circuses toured that summer but like nothing compared to that so let's go back in time and talk about the <laughs> thank 
you and talk about the beginning of P.T. Bar- Barnum's circus. Um, if you've seen uh, The Greatest Showman, which, Sam, you I haven't. Have not. So I'll tell you. They have his... He did come from humble beginnings. I will admit that. That is historically factual. But in this movie, he's, like, like working at this data input company that goes bankrupt and then which I think he did have some menial jobs and was kind of like I don't really want to work this hard I want to be more of an entrepreneur who can't relate to that yeah um but in the movie he hears about trains as a young kid and that like in like traveling the country which is historically inaccurate um, he was not a child when the trains revolutionized the circus. Um, but anyway, besides that, when he's a child, he's hungry on the streets, and this sort of disfigured woman, like, gives him an apple, and he's like, oh, the kindness of human oddities. Sounds like Snow White. Yeah, but she just, like, gives him an apple and then leaves him alone. And then as an adult, his company goes bankrupt, he gets laid off, and he's... He sees another, he sees, like, a small, a dwarf, and he's like, oh, another human oddity. Finally, this is what, this is what I should do, and then he, like... It seems problematic. It's so much more problematic in real life. Oh, boy. So, which is why this is so funny to me that, like... a shocker. This movie is showing him, like, banding together with these, these out, these social outcasts. And in the movie, the social outcasts, like, are his main show. It's a freak show in the movie. It's a freak show in the movie. And we'll get to how that is, like, reflective of real life in a way. But in the movie, they are not completely his equal. They are, they do point out that, like, they go into a party of, like, really upper class members of New York society and all these New Yorkers are like, what the hell? Like, who are these people? But at the same time, the like resolution of the movie is that everybody loves them eventually, mm. which is just okay. So, P.T. Barnum's actual origin story. So, I'm gonna start with his beginning in like circus work because mm-hmm. he did have some other jobs, but I don't care about them. His intro into circus work and strap in for this was displaying an old blind black woman named Joyce Heth in New York in 1835 and claiming that she was George Washington's 161-year-old nursemaid. So he was a con. Yes. Basically. And a racist? Like, yeah, but so was everybody at that point, which isn't an excuse. And so technically, this is like so messed up. So technically... Slavery is abolished. But for some reason, this woman, he, like, leased her out from somebody else. I'm guessing probably not, like, a talent agency. No. (laughs) Like, somebody who somehow owned her, even though you couldn't have slaves. But anyway, he toured with her around New England. And she, in the documentary, when they talk about this, they say, like, 
yeah, she played the part, but also it's not like she had a choice, you know? Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Is she being paid? I seriously doubt it. Jesus. Um, Once she stopped earning money, like, or once she stopped bringing in money for him, this is really interesting. He chose to spread rumors about himself that he was a fraud and that Joyce was not a 161-year-old woman, but actually an automaton. Interesting. Yeah. So not like he's a fraud because she's only 80, but he's a fraud because she's a robot. Huh. And then this is like the worst part. After she died, he hosted a live autopsy of her body and charged people 50 cents to come see her cut up. And which was like the proof that she wasn't 161 years old. Or a robot. Yeah. Not the greatest show, but <laughs> yeah. somehow I kind of doubt that made it into the the Disney movie. Yeah, believe it or not, they didn't mention that in the musical. Yeah, must be in the director's cut. So that was in eighteen thirty five. In eighteen forty one, he starts Barnum's American Museum, which is in the movie. He opens Barnum's American Museum in the movie initially as a sort of like taxidermy museum. And then his kids are like, you're not selling tickets because nothing's alive in your museum. You need stuff that's alive. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get social outcasts. I think we need a movie about all the the plucky kids that were secretly pulling the strings behind Barnum. (laughs) Yeah, um, I agree. Be like Steven Spielberg could make it. It'd be like Super 8, but it's like a circus. Honestly... By and large, I'm so disappointed in this movie, if not just because I think the a lot of the visuals are really cool because the pictures of the actual circuses in, like, the 19th century look amazing, but they're in black and white, and I would love to see a movie that utilizes those really amazing and magical visuals in a way that isn't a musical about hot P.T. Barnum not being super shady and gross. Sounds like it would be a great HBO miniseries. If anybody is a producer listening, uh, feel free to email me. So in the actual Barnum's American Museum in real life, he had a melodrama theater, a zoo, an aquarium, um, other kind of natural science-y museum bits. And eventually... The melodrama theater transformed into a place with, uh, basically like, um, a stagnant circus. So he had gymnasts, magicians, fortune tellers, snake charmers, before famously introducing his human freaks. That is, quote, that's what he called them. Barnum. Yes. Barnum is, uh, really the one who develops this sort of sideshow circus freak tradition. I think his initial most famous human freak was somebody that he called Tom Thumb, who in the movie is actually, like, an actor with dwarfism, um, who's, like, 27, but looks like a child. In real life, it was a child. (laughs) Like, he was... Oh, interesting. It was a four-year-old, and then he claimed that this kid was older than he was. So I feel like... So far, what I'm taking away from this is that very briefly, around the turn of the uh, 19th century, there were circuses that were these elaborate 
displays of, you know, pushing the limits of human power and showcasing these exotic animals that people wouldn't have been able to see anywhere else. And then Barnum came along and just dragged that through the dirt. Well, Sounds like he was just a, an abusive, exploitative con man who would lie to get people's money. So we're going through his, sort of his personal history, and at this point, he's not a circus magnate. Growing pains. Yeah. Growing pains. So I would say he's not at a point yet where he's dragging the circus tradition through the mud. Oh, but it's coming. We'll get there. Okay. Um, Barnum's Museum burns to the ground on July 13th, 1865. Drink every time the circus burns down. <laughs> He reestablished at another location in New York City, but this was also destroyed by a fire in March 3rd, 1868. Um, the loss was too great the second time, so he retired from the museum business. And then uh, David Castillo, or sorry, Dan Castillo and William Coop made a lot of money touring a show in 1870 around the Great Lakes. And they reach out to Barnum to create a traveling circus. It's called P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. Hippodrome. Yes. Are you Horses. Saying? Yeah. So the Hippodrome in ancient Greece was a stadium for horse racing and chariot racing. Cool. They began in New York and toured... The Northeast, and then the winter of 1872, uh, after the tour, Barnum houses the circus on 14th Street in New York City, and on Christmas Eve, a fire destroys the costumes, instruments, and nearly the entire menagerie, and Coop wants to sit out the next tour season, but Barnum insists they can recover with pluck, tenacity, and money. So he was just conning everyone. <laughs> well, I don't necessarily feel like he was conning anybody in that particular situation would you like to make an opposing argument to that well it just sounds like he's kind of stringing coop along without any idea of whether or not they'll be able to pull it off but he needs that money that is reflected in the greatest showman so maybe good on them for adding that part of his personality um yeah i think that is a fair assessment although Coop could have pulled out like I think it, part of it is just that Barnum is really stubborn stubborn tenacious whatever reckless you, whatever you want to call it um so they have to replace the menagerie which leads us into talking a little bit about the animal situation um this is gonna get rough <clears throat> So, strap in. Still strapped in from the last time. <laughs> Just add that extra strap real quick. There was a German guy named Karl Hagenbeck who was the go-to supplier of animals for circuses because he was really reliable. It was payment on delivery instead of payment up front. Um, and if your animal died on the way to you or really soon after delivery, he would replace it. So, they only want... Circuses wanted young animals because adults are too big to handle and ship yeah we've all seen tiger king they would sometimes buy adult animals yeah but when you sell them off you sell them off as cubs that's true but i think that's more for the like cute factor this is a lot more mm. practical okay in order to get the young 
animals, though, you have to go through the adults. And there was one situation where 40 rhinos were killed in Africa in the process of obtaining four baby rhinos. That sucks. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. That's, that's really awesome. And then obviously the mortality rate of the caught animals goes up as you're transitioning them into captivity. Something I want to mention is there were no zoos at the time. The circus menagerie was the zoo of the 19th, of 19th century America. So it's highly unlikely that any audience questioned where these animals were coming from, what the background was. Well, I think back then, too, uh, animal rights weren't really in the forefront of most people's minds. I mean, child labor wasn't even outlawed until, like, 1915 or something. So, like, yeah. who gives a shit, right, if 40 rhinos have to die for I mean, four cubs? interestingly, to convict somebody of child abuse before there was child abuse, you convicted them of animal abuse. So we had animal abuse convictions before child abuse convictions. But you're right, animal activism wasn't really a thing. And I think largely because there just wasn't, like, nobody was bringing elephants and zebras over until this time. So you don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you have no idea what goes into obtaining these animals. Elephants in particular were really popular, um, so they bore a lot of the weight of the animal performances. The vast majority of elephant trainers and handlers did deeply love their animals and would develop really tender relationships with them, but also a lot of trainers used violence to train. Um, and there was kind of this wariness and almost expectation that animals would, quote, go bad as a result of confinement and elephants being deeply social creatures would lash out because they're being confined wouldn't you yeah so we will leave the animal aspect there for now we'll come back to it later in the chronology oh boy i can't wait well when we come back to it later it'll be animal rights so oh, that's good yeah <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the sideshow tent again for a bit. Um, the sideshow tent is really what distinguished Barnum's circus. His, his focus on human curiosities becomes a defining feature of his circus and later other circuses because you have to compete, you know? And human curiosities, is that what he was calling them? Yes. Well, I think he was calling them, like, freaks. Human curiosities is, I think, a nicer way of framing what they thought these people were mm -hmm. um there's obviously a large dimension of exploitation and racialization um chinese people were considered a human oddity completely able-bodied regular ass chinese people cool were... that's great and i I thought you were talking about how progressive the circus was socially. In certain aspects of it, it's very tenuous. I'll get there. Um, part of that is that historian James Cook says, quote, these are not pure victims. These are people making choices. I'm thinking strategically about what forms of upward mobility are available to them in a world without support for people with disability, unquote. So nobody's forcing these people into this. There is an aspect 
of not having any other choice or very little choice besides this. It sounds like they're being forced into it if they don't have a choice. Well, I think they're being forced into it, I'll argue, by society at large, but not by the circus in particular. Mm -hmm. There is certainly something to be said for, uh, you know, there was a woman who didn't have arms and her, quote, act was to write letters with her toes and like sew with her toes and she made money off of that she's performing an act she's a performer so she earns a living in a world that would otherwise probably just have her sitting around in some sort of hospice situation with a very low quality of life here she has autonomy she's earning an income i mean it's exploitative but She's also afforded a a level of autonomy that other people with disabilities just didn't have. So it's a, it's, there's, you know, sides to it. So it's kind of a stereotype to run away with the circus, but people did do that. And largely because it offered opportunities to people who felt like they were outsiders. And we will talk about that more. So we're in the 1880s now. And there's a fierce rivalry between Barnum and this man, Adam Forepaugh, who began a circus and then traveled internationally with it. And so he's come back now to America. And this forces the circus into its golden age. It's bigger, better, more perilous, more amazing. Um, In 1881, the Barnum Circus merges with James Bailey and James L. Hutchinson um, to form Barnum and Bailey's circus. Bailey was really good at advertising and sort of shaping public opinion. Um, so this really sort of skyrockets Barnum. Because he's a snake oil salesman. The entertainment equivalent of a snake oil salesman. <laughs> Ar- yeah, arguably yes. Um, let's talk more about how much Barnum sucks. He introduced something called the Ethnological Congress. Oh, boy. And this was his way of expanding the sideshow to be what he called, quote, a huge ethnological congress of barbarous and savage tribes, unquote. Sounds like a human zoo. It is. This congress included people from Asia, Australian Aborigines, Europe, uh, Native Americans from the West, and Africa. And there was at least one African man who was there against his will. Yeah, that's progressive. It was literally an act of colonialism and imperialism uh, because they are being acquired from these other countries and um, continents and then sent to America for the sake of capital. And... Garrity, for the best part, the Congress was displayed in the Animal Menagerie. I'm shocked. Just shocked. Can you hear the shock in my voice? Yes. You can feel it from here. In 1882, there were 33 circuses touring America, and two years later, there are 50. Among them are the Ringling Brothers, who will be the next big Barnum and Bailey kind of circus conglomerate. They were described by historians as just a case of the impossible being possible. 
they were so acutely poor and it makes no sense that they were as successful as they were. Um, but they were successful, the argument is because they had a reputation as the, quote, Sunday school circus, unquote. They outlawed drinking um, for all the staff and performers. They had... How progressive. Well, when you're trying to subvert this idea of, you know, the circus being sinful and indecent, this is this aspect of them being pure, wholesome, you know, go uh, making efforts to keep crime down on the lot is what catapulted them into success. Forepaw dies in January 1890. Barnum dies in 1891, leaving Bailey in charge of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. How old was Barnum when he died? He was 80 years old when he died. Bailey takes his circus to England in 1898, which leaves the Ringling Brothers the opportunity to uh, basically take over. In 1897, they had introduced a blacktop tent, which housed a projectoscope and is what introduced many people to movies for the first time. In 1902, Bailey returns from Europe concurrently with throngs of immigrants coming to America, uh, many who cannot speak English or read. But something they mention in the PBS documentary is that the circus is kind of this unifying force because, you know, you don't need to be literate, you don't need to know English to see somebody defy death and to see vibrant color and spectacle. Yeah, much like uh, cinema. Yeah. Something else I want to note, the nature of traveling American circuses actually don't foster new acts or circus talent because you're performing three times a day, packing up at a new place to perform the next day. So actually, most of the performers came from European circus families who would rehearse and perform in stagnant places. So a lot of the famous circus performers are European. So let's talk about... One of the more progressive aspects of the circus in general, not Barnum and Bailey Circus specifically. I do want to make that distinction because we've seen that Barnum sucks. So when we talk about things being more progressive, it's really just sort of the nature of the circus in general, not necessarily him. So what does that mean? What? Like, what's the difference? Like, were there other circuses? Were there a well, lot? yeah, I mean, we already see the Ringling Brothers have another circus. Forepaw had his own circus. Yeah, but it seems like they're all kind of eclipsed by Barnum and or absorbed by Barnum. Not absorbed. Eclipsed is fair, but once Bailey dies, the Ringling Brothers are... Bailey dies in 1906. The Ringling Brothers pretty much take over, and this is kind of the era of social progress. And what I mean by a distinction between Barnum and Bailey's circus and circus in general is really more of a distinction between me saying that the circus has progressive aspects and me saying that P.T. Barnum was a progressive man. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the nature of the circus, dating back to its origin, is a place that offers women in particular a level of autonomy that is pretty much unheard of in any other kind of profession or, you know, community. And I'm assuming it's white women. Yes, that is certainly a pitfall, but 
it's progress, even if it's not ideal progress. Um, so in 1912, during women's suffrage, um, the Barnum and Bailey Circus women were already on board. They were, not all of them, but a lot of them participated. Janet Davis, who is a circus historian, she says, quote, The circus is a space where women did have opportunities that were unavailable in other areas of American life. Big top performers were paid just as well as their male counterparts. The circus offered women a life of independence and freedom from the watchful eyes of communities and family members, unquote. Strong women like Katie Sanduina and other extraordinary performers like Mae Worth did a lot to demonstrate plainly that women were more than capable of meeting and exceeding the feats of men. And one suffrage activist said, quote, there is no class of women who show better that they have a right to vote than the circus women who twice a day prove they have the courage and endurance of men, unquote. Janet Davis has an article called Ladies of the Ring. That... Sorry, I just I think that's funny that the reason they think that they should be eligible to vote is not because they're women, but because they're women that seem like men and therefore they should be able to vote because of their manliness, not because of their own self. I think that's reductive. I think that, first of all, you have to have a historic perspective and understand where they're coming from when they say things like this um, and you can't expect them to speak about this the way we would speak about it today mm -hmm. and secondly I don't think that's what they're saying I think it, they're not saying that only women who are as buff as men can vote and that should be how it is they're saying that these circus women are plainly demonstrating in the kind of archaic social language of the men of the time that women are just as good as men. They can be just as strong. They can do just as perilous and courageous things. They can earn a wage just as good as a man can. Um, this is another quote from Janet Davis, her article, Ladies of the Ring. Quote, on Sunday, March 31st, 1912, a group of female Barnum and Bailey circus performers gathered around a baby giraffe at Madison Square Garden and ceremoniously named her Miss Suffrage. The christening heralded the creation of a new women's suffrage group, the Barnum and Bailey Circus Women's Equal Rights Society, unquote. She also says in this article that a traveling circus is the ideal location to advance suffrage because it brings in throngs of people from miles away into one location where suffragettes can hand out pamphlets and where circus performers can support the cause and subvert notions that women are not equal to men. Something interesting as well is that tattooed women in the circus did a lot to subvert patriarchal social standards. Um, tattooed women traveling with the circus like Nora Hildenbrandt and Irene Woodward, um, who made their debuts as tattooed performers in 1882, were low-class individuals um, who used tattoos as a means of positioning themselves as assets for the circus and securing a level of financial independence and worldliness that is just unheard of for women, especially lower class women. So the books and articles and dissertations that I've sort of supplemented the documentary with 
um, all sort of point to this idea of the circus subverting societal rules and expectations for women years, if not decades, before the larger female population decides to. So even when, as Janet Davis discusses in her article, circus advertisements uh, like do their darndest to present circus women as devoutly domestic and traditionally feminine, these women are still denying the rules of dress, the perceived physical limitations of women, and earning just as much money as their male counterparts. So, specifically, they're progressive for women's rights. Yeah. They're not just, like, blanket progressive and all sorts of... Like, when you're arguing that they're progressive, you're arguing that they were progressive for women's rights. I've been careful to say that I'm arguing that they're progressive in certain aspects... Mm-hmm. One of which is women is women's rights. Another one of which we will get to. So moving on the chronology, May twenty fifth, nineteen fourteen, a lumberyard fire in Cleveland, Ohio, rains embers on the Ringling Circus. It destroys forty three cars of the circus train. Now we can talk about another arguably progressive aspect which is that the ringling brothers had long enticed visitors into the sideshow tent um, with a fully african-american band and in 1919 they hired the best jazz band master pg lowry he was extremely talented um but his race kept him from you know rising above sideshow tent performances I would argue that society prevented him from moving forward, not his race. That's a better way to frame it, yeah. The way that society saw him yeah. from moving forward. Like, there was nothing inherently wrong with him for being black. No, and he was far more talented than a lot of white musicians. Mm-hmm. Lowry was a pillar in black communities and uh, revolutionized the kinds of music and performances played and put on by black circus musicians. The circus kind of becomes a, what one historian calls a backdoor into American pop culture for black musicians who really don't have a lot of other avenues available to them. It's not necessarily a respectable position to play the sideshow band in a circus, but you're traveling to all these big cities across the country, New York, Chicago, multiple times, and those cities have other music scenes that you can connect to. So it opens up a lot of doors that would otherwise not be available. The circus also played a surprisingly big part in spreading ragtime and jazz music throughout the country. A lot of people attending the circus had never heard music like this before. It gives black musicians a position of influence in a world that doesn't want to afford them that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a cool thing. I understand that when I talk about the circus being progressive in certain aspects, it is the smallest little bits. One step forward, of, two steps back. Yeah. So I <clears throat> I know it's not ideal in any way, but the ways in which the circus is kind of progressive are predating other progressive events, movements, reforms by years, if not decades. So I think that's I think that's commendable, if not just plain interesting. I don't know. Somebody I want to talk about is this lady Mabel Stark. Um, she's really wild. She's one of the most celebrated big cat trainers in the country, and quote one of the only women wrangling tigers in the big top unquote. 
She started out as a nurse, but after seeing big cats for the first time in 1911, she runs away with the circus. Nobody would just hire, you know, some lady to train big cats. Um, so one of the historians in the documentary says, quote, she realized very quickly if she was going to be anything, she had to get around the genius wild animal trainer, the best that ever worked in this country, and that was Louis Roth. And to do that, she had to marry him, unquote. So she marries him. She learns all that he has to know. And then she dumps him. Never loved him. Nice. Uh, by 1920s... Respect the hustle. <laughs> By the 1920s, animal activists are calling for better treatment of animals, and they're calling for the removal of big cat cage acts. The Ringling Brothers specifically actually get rid of the big cat cage acts because it's more financially viable for them, not necessarily for ethical reasons, but that's what spurs it, is Mm -hmm. the ethical call for the removal of that. Women are working as performers and the community of the circus they talk about in the documentary the other workers and performers actually help to raise the children of these women performers so there's this kind of amazing sense of not only female autonomy but also community support for that autonomy in the late 19th early 20th century so we can kind of close up the general chronology of the circus uh the ringlings kind of all die one after the other and as the 20s continue um you know movies radios tv sports boxing events these things all become more and more popular profuse kind of making the circus not as much of an interesting and new entertainment option in 1944 in hartford connecticut 186 people died um in the big top of a ringling circus that caught on fire. <laughs> um, so that's our last fire for <laughs> the podcast. It's a good thing I was only drinking water. <laughs> yeah, stay hydrated. Old switcheroo. In 1955, half of American households have a TV. And in 1956, a clash with the Teamsters Union. Um is kind of the last straw because circus workers until then weren't expected to be paid very much they were completely exploitable expendable and that was just kind of what you were signing up for that's progressive i didn't say the whole thing was progressive okay in july of 1956 john ringling north who is the son of the ringling bros sister um, he closes the show for good And that kind of puts an end to the heyday of the American circus. Well, I hope that was interesting, coherent, worthwhile. Uh, This is my first podcast, so so it can only get better from here. Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org forward slash beyond footnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please let us know your thoughts by contacting the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.